Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Aoife Barry, standing in for your usual host Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what can Ireland do now to fight climate change? Earlier this month, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released its sixth report on global climate change. This latest report made for stark reading. It highlighted that the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was higher in 2019 than any other time in at least two million years. Human-induced climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. This means heat waves, floods and droughts. Now, the report says that deep reductions in carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions are crucial to prevent the planet from warming by more than 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. In fact, the chair of the IPCC described the findings as a reality check. This week on the podcast, we look at the next steps for Ireland. What can the country do to reduce the impact of climate change going forward? To talk us through it, this week's guest is journalist John Gibbons, whose work you'll have seen in our Voices op-ed section on thejournal.ie. But first, our reporter Lauren Boland has been covering the findings of the IPCC report and she's going to talk us through what we need to know. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Hi, Eva. So can you tell us, what is this IPCC report? Like, who is behind it and how often does it come out? I mean, in a nutshell, the IPCC report is, it's a big deal. It's written by hundreds of scientists and what they do together is they look at the science that's been published on climate change in recent years, all of the findings that come out of those studies, and they put it all together to give this really comprehensive update on where we're at right now with the climate. So the IPCC, as you said, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So it has 195 member countries, and that includes Ireland. Um, and then within that, there's there's thousands of people who are involved with the work that the panel do- does, including the scientists who authored this report, who come from around the world. Because it gives a really sweeping overview of all the science we have on climate change. It's called an an assessment report. So it takes the research and the information that's out there and it it basically assesses it and it, it comes to conclusions about what the current state of the climate is. So this is the sixth one. The first one was published back in 1990. And then since then, there's been a new one roughly every kind of five to six years. So like you were saying there, they basically come to the conclusions that they come to by taking in information that's already been created or collated or written about by other experts and then they analyze it and write the report in it. Is that right? Yeah. So say with this report, the way the way the report works overall is that it comes out in sections. So what was published this month was the first section of the sixth assessment report. So the first section looks at the physical science of climate change. That's things like global temperatures, rainfall, glaciers melting, sea levels rising, oceans becoming more acidic, all of those kind of, you know, physical elements that you hear about with climate change. And then some of the future, some of the future sections of the report will look at angles more like adapting to climate change and its impacts um, and how to mitigate it. But for looking at this one so far that, that we already have out, the, you know, I, I suppose a big point of analysis was studies and data on greenhouse gas emissions, as well as the, the factors I mentioned there around things like temperature, rainfall, extreme weather events and things like that. And they do all of that by looking at the scientific evidence that's been published, uh, assessing it, collating it, identifying the trends. From there, what they can do is they say how certain we can be about a particular prediction 
or our understanding of a particular element of the current state of the climate. So setting out where we're at right now and where we'll be in the future. So, like you said, this is an absolutely massive report, so we're not expecting you to go through and pick out everything that they said, but there's bound to be some kind of main takeaways. Now, I mentioned a couple of bits there in my intro, but do you have any other main kind of takeaways or elements from the report that were extremely important that that they said in it? Well, first of all, what what they really emphasised near the start of the report is that the changes that we're currently seeing happen to our climate, these they haven't been seen before in hundreds or thousands of years. So the report said that the scale of recent changes to the climate system is unprecedented over centuries and millennia. And then looking at those changes and what's causing them, humans are the primary driver of global warming. Now that won't come as a surprise. Um, we know that humans have a huge impact on the climate, but what this report did is It was some of the clearest, I suppose, evidence of that, some of the clearest collection of evidence um, compared to any previous study. And that impact from humans on global warming, that comes mainly from greenhouse gas emissions. Um, As you said, Aoife, in 2019, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere was higher than any other time in at least 2 million years. It's hard to actually conceptualise just how long a time 2 million years is. And then similarly with methane and nitrous oxide, which are two other gases that contribute to global warming, they were at their highest um, for at least the past 800,000 years. So the, the big takeaway then from the report is that what all of that means is if we're going to prevent the planet from warming to catastrophic temperatures, what we need is these these significant and sustained reductions in emissions. That was really central to the, por- the report. There is, there is reason for hope that we can do that um, if we achieve that reduction in emissions. What the report said is that we would start to quite soon see, see benefits for air quality. And then in about 20 or 30 years, we, would, we could stabilize global temperatures to stop them rising further. There are some aspects of climate change that we can't stop happening in this century. So, for example, sea levels are expected to continue to rise in this century, even if we have very low greenhouse gas emissions. But by making those reductions in emissions now, it means that we can stop it for future centuries and millennia. Very interesting takeaways there from the report. So finally, Lauren, the government in Ireland here is part of the fight against climate change in the country, recently passed the Climate Act. Can you give us a brief overview of what this involves? That's right. So it's an amendment to a 2015 Climate Act that sets out new targets for Ireland. And I guess the most notable one of those is that there's a target to half our emissions by 2030 and to become carbon neutral by 2050. Um, So Michael D. Higgins signed that new legislation into law in July, and that makes the targets legally binding. So what's going to happen now is the government is going to publish a new climate action plan, um, setting out how they intend on reaching those goals later this year. Now, the context of the bill itself and the new upcoming action plan is actually quite interesting, too, because in 2017, the last government had put forward a plan for tackling climate change that covered up to 2022. But an environmental group brought a case to the Supreme Court over the plan because they said it wasn't going far enough to actually address the climate crisis in the way it needs to be addressed. And then last summer, the Supreme Court ruled in favour of the group. Um, So it ruled that the plan wasn't specific enough to be properly transparent. And the Climate Action Act from 2015 required the plan to be transparent. So that's what's led up now to this this new climate bill and the the upcoming climate action plan that we're expecting later this year. 
That's great. Thanks so much, Lauren, for filling us in on all of that. John, I'll go to you now. What was your overall impression of the IPCC report? I mean, was there anything new in it? Hi, Aoife. Yeah, I guess the, the key thing to say about the the IPCC's sixth assessment report, and of course, the, we've only got the first part of it, which is the scientific part. I guess the first thing to say about it is the clarity. I think previous reports, uh, which have been running since 1990, these typically publish about every seven to eight years. And they've tended to be really, really carefully worded, equivocal. And many people would say almost to the point of people really not knowing what to take from them. And I think part of that is the nature of how the IPCC works. It it requires a huge amount of consensus among uh, up to 195 countries have to sign off on everything. So if you can imagine getting that type of consensus means you tend to get what's known in, known in, the, in the field as the path of least drama. In other words, if there are two scenarios, they tend to pick the one that is the, the least uh, sensational because otherwise it's country X or country Y will refuse to sign off on it. So what you found over the years is, and I've been reading IPCC reports for, for quite some time, And what you find is they tend to use language, for example, like likely. And you say, okay, likely, unlikely, what does that mean exactly? Now, they were matching up phrases like that with percentages. Now, the percentages, so a term like likely would indicate a pretty high percentage or very likely was would be what you and I would describe as extremely likely. But the language, the wording was really like erring on the side of, as I say, of, of least drama. And I think that impeded communication. I really do. And what's different this time is that the language has been a lot clearer. And I think they've also been prepared to call out some of the conclusions and to say that we've moved into, uh, up until now, it's been, well, we think there, there's human influences in the climate, there's uh, natural influences, there's cyclical influences, and they're trying to thread out the, which is the dominant influence. And say the AR4, which came out in 2014, they clearly lean towards humans being the dominant influence, but they were still equivocal about it, which I found kind of strange because many of the individual scientific papers that made up that report were a lot clearer. So I was kind of waiting really for some clarity from the scientific community at IPCC level to really call this out and say, where where do we stand? What's going on? And I think they've done that with this report. Uh, some people have called it apocalyptic and doom laden. Uh, I think there's a touch of that for sure. Uh, it's certainly the language is much more accessible. I think journalists as well have found that uh, useful and maybe a little shocking at times. And bear in mind, the IPCC, this intergovernmental panel, is the largest scientific collaborative project in the history of science. This is not a few guys in a room putting stuff together. The first part, the scientific report, is just under 4,000 pages long. It is a massive collaboration. So it isn't about one guy's opinion or some paper that said this. This is about a synthesis of everything that we know on what we now know is the biggest and most critical scientific, uh, shall we say, frontier in, in really in human history. And it's interesting what you were saying there about the language and it being kind of stronger this time around, because my, my next question was going to be about the fact that even though, you know, every time one of the reports comes out, there is a flurry of, of media attention around it. It felt like this one was a lot bigger. And I'm wondering maybe if the language comes into that. But do you have any other reasons why there was a bigger splash, I suppose, with this current report? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I used the phrase in, in the Business Post recently when I was talking about this, and I used a phrase called cognitive consonance, which is a very fancy way of saying that what you're reading tallies with what you're seeing on the television. You're watching uh, the, the islands in Greece in flames. You're watching really apocalyptic scenes. And I think what that delivered to people is a sense that we're in a, a phase of dramatic climate shift. 
up until now, we've had these reports delivered, and especially in Ireland, because of our, our kind of temperate climate, we've always had this idea that we're not really part of this global climate system. And this time out, I think the feeling here is that this can happen here, this can happen to us. Because, for example, we saw a few weeks back, once in a thousand year flooding, uh, catastrophic flooding in Germany, Belgium, parts of the Netherlands, parts of Switzerland. And these were so-called once in a thousand year events, hundreds of people killed in some of the most developed countries in the world. And I think that brought it home because we're used to seeing people in countries far away and often people in, in the so-called global south getting hammered by weather disasters. And I think there's always been the feeling in Ireland that it's not really our problem and that it's it's happening somewhere else. And it, or also this idea with climate change that it's going to happen either to people far away or to people far in the future. Now, what we're getting here is the Father Ted effect of small and far away, where this is coming close. And we realize now that uh, this, this unfolding crisis is much, much closer. And there is a saying as well that people don't really change uh, when they see the light. They change when they feel the heat. And I really believe that's the case. I, I'm sensing a shift of some of the plates in politics, in media, uh, in public administration, where people are beginning to realize that uh, this thing left to its devices, this thing left to run, is going to tear down everything that we value. Yeah, I think more and more people have started to sit up and take notice, you know, since this report was launched. You said at the start that you found the language in the report surprising, but was there anything else, any facts or figures that you didn't expect? Not really. The important thing to remember is that these reports are based on published science. So I've, I'm privy to the science as other journalists in this area are. So we know the documents that are that are shaping these reports. Now, the reports simply synthesize these findings and put them together and, and, and apply language to them. So no, there's nothing in the report that I or people like me would have said, oh my gosh, the IPCC have discovered something. You see, they don't carry out original science. They collate the best of peer-reviewed science from all around the world, and they try and explain it and synthesize it. So, for example, you've got evidence coming through from marine science, you've got evidence coming through from paleoclimatology, all the different strands of science, and they're trying to thread them together to sort of make an overall pattern and to make sense of it. So, me looking at that, you know, I'm well aware there, and also I will say there's there's outlier studies that wouldn't have been included in the IPCC report that are a lot more alarming than the stuff that's been published over the last week or two. And they would have been considered in some cases, but not so much rejected, but excluded on the grounds of uncertainty. Because this concept in science of uncertainty, let's say, for example, that we don't know about the precise uh, physics of uh, a particular glacier. So we don't know whether that glacier is likely to collapse in five years, 50 years, or 500 years. In that case, the scientific community, and particularly through the IPCC model, they will tend, if there's high degrees of uncertainty about something, they will tend to exclude it because of the uncertainties. The problem with that is that you get what are called low probability, high outcome events, like, for example, uh, you know, a catastrophic, say, collapse of the Greenland ice pack. These are very difficult things to model. But the, but the reality is that a major event like that would render the entire IPCC process redundant, right? Uh, there was another, I'll give you another example. There was a report quite recently that indicated that the, um, the Gulf Stream, as it's called, or the AMOC, is slowing down dramatically. And this essentially, we're now into a, into a region where there is a risk of a full shutdown of the Atlantic overturn, overturning current. 
And for those of you who are not familiar with that, essentially the AMOC or the Gulf Stream transfers trillions of joules of heat energy uh, from the, the tropical regions, from the Caribbean region, and it dumps it uh, through warmer seas and warmer atmosphere around northwestern Europe. So Northwestern Europe is bathed in relatively warm water as a result, and that has that affects the ambient temperature. So one of the reasons why Ireland has the climate that we have is because of the Gulf Stream. Uh, if you draw a line of latitude to the to the left, you we're at the same height uh, in latitude terms as Newfoundland in in Canada. And I've made this point before: Newfoundland is frozen over for six to seven months of the year. Uh, they the, the agriculture systems that we have in Ireland we couldn't exist in this. So. If we have a situation of a full shutdown of the Gulf Stream, we're looking at drastically different climatic conditions in, in not just in northwestern Europe, but all over the world. For example, shutting down the Gulf Stream would also quite possibly shut off the monsoon, uh, which basically uh, waters and supports hundreds of millions of people uh, in India, Pakistan and so on. And so all of these systems, of course, are interconnected. Now, the IPCC can't come out and say this is going to happen. All they can do is give you probability ranges and so on. Yeah, the report on the Gulf Stream is very sobering. Um, the New York Times actually had an excellent piece on it. If people want to read more, head to their website and you'll find it there. But the Gulf Stream is also something that is crucially important for Ireland. Like, Are there many factors specific then to Ireland mentioned in the IPCC report? Or is it a case of just extrapolating the findings and putting them into an Irish context? Well, that's interesting because one of the things that the report does is it allows you, uh, it, it sort of drills into regional models, right? So you can kind of examine, even yourself can go online and, and look at regional uh, modeling. So some of the modeling will tell you about future uh, climatic uh, situations at a regional level, where before they tended to do it on a, on, a, on a much, on a continental level. So, you know, this report is giving us much more detail about what we can expect. And of course, alongside that, uh, and again, with scientists here in Ireland, like the likes of Professor Peter Thorne in NUIM, who are feeding in climate science from Ireland. So this isn't coming at us from on high. This is a, a collaboration of the best of science in, in all the contributing countries, including Ireland. So we know, for example, there was a, a major report on the, on the current and future cha uh, climate in Ireland uh, published last year, or last week, I should say. It was a, it was a collaborative effort between uh, Medairn, the EPA, and uh, one of the marine agencies. And they found that the climate of Ireland is changing radically. We know, for example, that our uh, mean temperature in Ireland has increased by 0 0.9 degrees centigrade, which in a very short period of time, which is the fastest rate of change, certainly in thousands of years. We know that our oceans around Ireland are warming up. We know that uh, our rainfall patterns are changing. We know that we've already got 6 to 7% more rainfall than would have been the case 30 years ago. So even in the time, even in the 30-year time frame, which is how you measure climate, is basically kind of the, the changes in weather systems over a 30-year time frame. In that time, the climate of Ireland has changed measurably. Now, people my age and, and basically anybody over the age of 40 and maybe over the age of 50 will have a clear sense of when I was a kid or when I was in college, I was in the, the climate in, the, in this country was different to the climate in this country today, measurably, noticeably different. And when I talk to older people again, for them, the changes are even more marked. And now so far, touch wood, we have avoided major catastrophes in this country but we are equally vulnerable i think that's an incredibly important point to get across and i've said this before i've always felt as long as i'm in this that that the attitude in ireland among the politicians among the lobby groups is look we're grand 
we've got a maritime climate, we're protected by the ocean, we're, 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 we're not part of the system really. And that is an absolute nonsense. And as you just said, the Gulf Stream proves we're in an absolutely interconnected world. And what happens in one part of the system affects everybody. And I think this realization has been very, very slow in coming. And I think there's been so much of this uh, sectoral choosing which parts of the science that we choose to believe, which parts suit us. Uh, and there's been a narrative in Ireland again, uh, which has been, I think, a, a huge lack of engagement because to take a 10-year time frame to in 2010 to 2020, uh, our, the Irish government was given climate targets. They were, they were the EU targets to reduce our emissions by 20% by 2020. And basically, we achieved nothing, maybe 1% at most. Right. Uh, some of our sectors like energy did quite well, uh, but our transport sector continued to increase and our agriculture sector actually really put the boot down and increased, I think, by 8% in that decade, which is an enormous increase in emissions. And this is at a time when we're told that we have a global emergency requiring every sector to dramatically reduce emissions. And it's it, it, wor it worries me a lot to look into the future as to what, how real we are or how real we're prepared to get in terms of taking on those challenges. What did you think of the Irish government's reaction or, or statements that were released on the IPCC report? <laughs> yeah, well, as you know, I wrote about this, uh, I think, the day after the report was issued on the journal.ie. And uh, it was kind of interesting. I, I uh, was, was remarking on the extraordinary silence of uh, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil's Twitter accounts, uh, Leo Varadkar, Michal Martin's personal Twitter accounts, or so-called personal accounts, not a sausage. I think it was 36 hours, Aoife, before there was any response whatsoever. Now, in politics, 36 hours, as you know very well, is a hell of a long time. And I was kind of uh, smiling to myself thinking, had this been, you know, some some big announcement for for industrial launch or something, they'd have been all over it. So I think there was a, a sense on the part of the main government parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, they haven't engaged with this. And I know that it's, it's some would say it's not in their DNA. I think if I had to pick one, and I'm, I'm not in the business of, of, of picking political favourites, but I think Fianna Gael seems to have the biggest problem with this. I think Fianna Fáil are probably more pragmatic. They kind of go with the flow. But Fianna Gael, there's an ideological problem there. I don't know what it is. I wish I did. But there's a real strong ideological problem with them engaging with this. So bearing in mind, John, what you've said there, the government has taken some steps to tackle climate change. I mean, mainly through the Climate Act, which Lauren told us about earlier on in the podcast. And the targets here include reaching a 51% reduction in carbon production by 2030. And then there's another one, for example, which is to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, that seems very far away, but we're, we're rapidly heading towards 2022. So are those targets actually achievable then within those specific timeframes? Yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting uh, question. First of all, as I mentioned, 2010 to 2020, we achieved nothing, right? Now, that's a 10-year period where we achieved nothing. So now we've got an eight-and-a-half-year period where we're supposed to achieve 51%. Now, the agriculture sector have already excluded themselves to this process and been given a political free pass. The best promise that they're prepared to make at the moment is 10%. 10%, not 51, 10. Now, it's been recalculated that every other sector needs to achieve an average 73% by 2030 uh, to, in order to, to make up for, for the, the emissions cuts that agriculture will simply not make. Uh, and that the politicians have said that's absolutely fine. Uh, 
And that now, if you ask me, is 51% possible in, in any sector? I'd say in the energy sector, uh, we're going to get, not only are we going to get there, we're going to exceed it. Uh, last time I checked, we were at about 42% uh, in, the, in our energy sector. It's been our real champion sector. I think the targets for 2030 in energy are probably towards uh, 70% renewable energy. And I think we'll get there. So that's a huge success story for Ireland. Huge story for employment, huge story for for. Uh, resilience and so on. The problem is we haven't radically, for example, challenged our transport system. Our transport system is still an absolute mess. Also, of course, the way we live, uh, the fact that we've continued to allow once-off housing all over the country and distributed uh, settlement, that militates radically against emissions reductions because we're building houses in the wrong places and building in car dependence. They've got to bring their kids to school. They've got to drive to their schools. They've got to drive to everywhere. So we've got a car culture that we've absolutely failed to address in any in any sense. And so you can only do that by looking at your spatial uh, strategy in terms of that. And there's been no will to do that. Um, whether we can achieve it in other areas like energy, for example, we know that we need to, we have a housing stock where at least a million Irish houses, homes, apartments need to be retrofitted to get them to get the energy reduction down. Is that going to happen in eight and a half years? Not a chance. You know, but we also need to be serious about a transition. I, I said about uh, transport. I mean, we have from, I think it was 1996 to 2016, the number of cars on the road in Ireland increased from about a million to over two million, right? So that shows you essentially uh, that we've become a car dependent culture the way countries like America are, where everything is dependent on the owning of a car and the running of a car. And the fact, of course, is that this is exactly the direction we need to be moving away from. By 2030, instead of saying we'll all be driving electric cars, which is a pipe dream, by the way, what we need to be looking at is a dramatic reduction in the total number of cars on the road. And when we're talking about these big changes that we need to make in Irish society, farming is always an area that's brought in. Um, and farming is obviously very important to the Irish economy. But we also know that Ireland's reliance on dairy and beef farming does contribute a lot to our methane emissions. So is there a way of reducing these emissions without impacting the economy and the farmers themselves? Or is it just simply an area where radical change is needed? Yeah, I I think we can make good decisions. We've already made really poor decisions. So, for example, since 2015, uh, the, the national, well, I won't call it a national herd. There is no such thing as a national herd. The number of dairy cows in Ireland has increased by about 500,000. That's had a major knock-on effect in terms of, as you say, methane emissions, in terms of the overuse, the excessive use of nitrogen, which is a really potent pollutant, particularly in our, in our, in our water systems, and as a producer of airborne ammonia, which is a, is a major source of air pollution. So all of these, and this again, I'm quoting the EPA here, they have said repeatedly on this, all our environmental indicators in Ireland as a result of this sudden surge in highly pollution intensive form of agriculture, all our uh, pollution indicators are going in the wrong direction. That's the phrase the EPA have used over and over again, but that has been ignored by our agriculture sector. It's been ignored by the Department of Agriculture. Uh, this debate, so-called debate between farmers and environmentalists is often framed as you know one group going against the other. The reality is the people who are who are driving this agenda of, of commodity growth in the agriculture sector are multinational um, agri-industry interests. These are billion euro companies with multi-millionaire CEOs. These are not ordinary farmers driving this agenda. Now, the, the, these particular 
multi-billion organizations, which, by the way, they may be based in Ireland, some of them, but these are transnational corporations that have absolutely no particular interest in Ireland. Their interest in is getting Ireland to produce cheap raw materials for commodities. That's all the multinationals are interested in, is a cheap source of commodities that allow them to buy cheaply from farmers and then to, to put a markup on it and sell it off some other place. So that's a system that doesn't work well for Ireland. It is a emissions intensive. And a couple of quick stats on that. Ireland, for example, we produce more emissions per euro of agricultural output than any other country in the EU 27. That will tell you how big a problem we are. And we also know that every other European country, even including the Netherlands, has moved away. It has de-intensified its livestock sector over the last number of years in response to environmental pressure. The only country that has really gone headlong in the opposite direction is Ireland. And it has done so because of the, the undue strength and influence and lobbying muscle of this agribusiness sector. I'm not called, this is not farmers. This is the agribusiness sector. And they have strangled, for example, uh, horticulture and they have strangled organic farming. These are things that there's a genuine growth. The fastest growing sector in agriculture in Europe is organic. But organic requires small scale uh, farmers uh, working without chemical inputs. And of course, the other thing about multinationals is apart from buying cheaply from farmers, they make a lot of the money selling inputs, expensive inputs to farmers, selling them pesticides, selling them herbicides, selling them uh, fertilizers. So they want farmers to be dependent on a high input system with lots of inputs, a lot of productivity and low prices at the farm gate. And that model has suited the multinationals. It's been co-opted by farm groups and it has been pushed down the necks of farmers who find themselves then. And the people they're told to give out about to are people like me, environmentalists, environmental commentators. And farmers have been told that we're the enemy and we're the reason why they're having a hard time. They're having a hard time because uh, we live in a changing world. And right around the world, uh, this shift, uh, this dietary shift, uh, this essential dietary shift uh, away from meat and livestock and towards a largely plant-based diet. And the critical thing here is who produces plant-based diets? Only farmers. And yet in Ireland, when you mention, for example, I hear farmers oppose vegetarians. And you say, well, who the heck produces vegetables for vegetarians? Farmers do. Except in Ireland, of course, we, we produce very little uh, vegetables because of the model has been grabbed here. And farmers have been convinced that the only thing that grows in Ireland is grass. Now, this is an absolute misnomer. Ireland uh, in the past, what, especially during tough times, for example, during the Second World War and during the First World War, the percentage of Ireland's land under tillage in both of those emergencies increased dramatically. And the reason was when there's times of genuine shortage, what you need to do is to produce food for humans. At the moment, our agriculture system, which is very efficient in some ways, produces large amounts of food for animals, right? And by the time we've eaten the produce of the animals, whether it's the meat or the dairy or whatever, We've had a massive energy loss through that. So we, we engage a lot of land in Ireland, but relatively speaking, the calorific output of that is actually quite low. And Ireland, you know, is a very small country. We're talking there about major changes that we could make that would be major for Ireland. But how much of a difference can we make, I suppose, in terms of the global situation with climate change? I mean, if you're comparing the actions, you know, Ireland's actions to the actions of a much larger economy or countries, somewhere like China, for example, or, you know, the fact we've got global industries like the aviation industry. I mean, 
if they're not making big enough changes, but we're here, the small island on the edge of Europe trying to do our best, like, does that make a difference or is it not a zero sum game at the same time? Okay, the first thing is we, we in, in emissions and pollution terms, we punch way above our weight. We're either the second or the third most polluting country in Europe per capita. So let's just say it's not that Ireland is heroically trying to solve this problem alone in the world. What we are is we're an outlier in terms of pollution. And the, our contribution to pollution is grossly disproportionate to our population. So let's we put that one out of the way straight away, right? And if I was to translate that into the 60 million tons of pollution that uh, Ireland accounts for every year in terms of carbon or carbon equivalent pollution, that is the same amount of pollution that two to 300 million people in sub-Saharan Africa are contributing, right? So in that sense, when you compare it, it's vast. Also, and I've heard the China argument, and it's, it's a, a legitimate point. Well, wh why should we do it? What about China? Okay, a couple of things again. Our uh, emissions per capita are three times the average Chinese person. Yes, there's more of them, but are we more important as human beings than that Chinese person? Have, should you know? Should they give up something when we give up nothing? So I think when we're starting from a position that the average Irish person, every man, woman, and child in Ireland accounts for 12 tons of carbon a year, that's a ton of carbon per month, right? If that's the case, so we're starting from this hugely high level. Now, if we're not prepared to act and act in accordance with the science, how can we expect anybody else to? That's the really important thing. And I think there is, it's been, this has been described as a sort of a collective action dilemma, that the danger here is that if everybody sits around waiting for everybody else to act and saying, well, I'm not doing anything until he does it, we're sort of like the guys in the boat with the hole in the middle of the boat. And we're saying, well, you know, I'm not going to fix it. Why don't why don't China fix it? You know, they, they've contributed more to the hole in the boat than I have. And the basic answer, Aoife, to that is we're in the same boat, literally. And unless we get together to fix the hole in the boat, we're heading for the bottom of the ocean. And it doesn't matter whether China or Korea or America or Britain is the main culprit, because ultimately we either solve this collective action problem together or we fail together. So in that sense, opting out is simply not an option. And also, and I, I heard Professor John Sweeney make this point in primetime recently, and he described uh, the argument, you know, we're only small arguments. He described it, I think, as, as uh, morally um, repugnant, I think was the phrase he used. He said it's, it's, you know, for a rich country with a high pollution profile like Ireland to say that we're small and insignificant, he said it, it's just morally an indefensible position. What are the biggest solutions here that Ireland could put in place, you know, either by the government or by the public, you know, basically anything that we could implement that maybe isn't already on the agenda? We need to make big, big changes, really dramatic changes. We need to, as I said earlier, we need to move, shift to have a dramatic modal shift towards a combination of public transport, cycling, etc. Uh, we need to do that, not because we're we're right on woke greenies, but we need to do that because we drastically need to future proof and to decarbonize our system. We have to do that. Number one. Number two, we need in line with the science, in line with the IPCC and in line with national food security, we need to realign our agriculture systems to be biodiversity friendly, to be uh, supportive of, ag of uh, organic systems uh, that give a, a, a more security of income to farmers and systems that are less dependent. At the moment, our agriculture systems are all export oriented to some very distant markets and some very volatile markets. We need to reorient that to, to provide 
uh, much more for the domestic markets. It's an astonishing fact that you, you mentioned earlier, Ireland is a major agricultural exporter. That's true. We're also a massive food importer, right? So we have this weird situation where the, you know, if you look out in the Irish Sea, you can see the shipping containers passing each other. One is Irish uh, agriculture produce heading abroad, and the other is food coming in to feed Irish people from abroad. We need to really radically look at that situation. We need to reduce the carbon intensity of our food production, which means a mode shift away from livestock. Now, of course, the lobbies will go mad every time you say that, they freak out. And, uh, you know, and if I were to single out the one thing that we, the, the, the public, the, the Joe and Josephine public, what do we need to do? We need to get a lot more active, a lot more engaged. I, I'll give you a small example. Uh, a councillor mentioned recently, and I don't know which party she was, but she mentioned that she got, uh, I think, one or two emails or letters recently over the last few months. You know, she, she supports wind, wind energy. And she said she got 46 emails and letters complaining about her support of wind energy. And her point is there are people objecting to whether it's bicycle lanes or wind turbines or anything at all, anything towards this, this future that we need to get to. And they will object like crazy and they will lobby their politicians. And I often think that people who silently support these changes are a lot less inclined to be militant about it. In other words, they say, yeah, I'm really in favor of cycle lanes. If you are, have you written to a politician about it? Because I promise you, the people who object to cycle lanes, they're all writing and phoning politicians. So I think those of us who are trying to work towards the kind of changes for a safer future for ourselves and our kids, we, we're too polite sometimes, I think, and we're leaving it to, to, to some really serious fringe people who are pushing back against change, some people who are denying science, some vested lobby groups who are, who are you know, distorting our understanding of this, of this situation. Uh, and we see some of them popping up in all sorts of places I won't necessarily get into today. Uh, and we as citizens, and, and I do think, by the way, you started by asking me, has anything changed? I think what has changed is the penny has dropped this summer. The summer of 2021, I think, for me, is an inflection point. As I said, I'm at this in the public domain for 14 years. This is the first time I can say to you that I feel positive and optimistic about the future in some ways. Why? Because the public finally gets it. Now, you are still going to have to fight against your lobby groups. Uh, they're fighting twice as hard. You're still going to have to push back. But there's more of us than there is of them. And that's what we need to understand. There are people listening to this podcast today who are thinking, do you know what? I have I agree with this, but I've never done a single thing about it. Well, today's your lucky day, right? Start getting active, right? Join a group if you want. Don't join a group if you want. Join a political party if you want. It doesn't matter what party it is. If you're concerned about these issues, get involved. We need to move away from this kind of trance of behaving like consumers, like sheep, and start behaving like active citizens. Because you know, you've probably heard me say this before, we're the last generation. It's been said time and time again, but it's true. We are the last generation who have any say over the future of the climatic systems on Earth. And that, to me, is a massive responsibility. Every decision I make every day, even however infinitesimal, and I don't mean, by the way, about sorting my, my plastic and my waste. I mean, do that if you want. The really, the decisions we need to make are structural decisions, decisions involving policy, decisions involving politics and decisions involving facing down vested interest groups. A lot of sobering thoughts there and a lot of uh, very good information too for people if they do feel that uh, they're wondering whether or not individuals can make a difference uh, with topics. 
this big. Thanks so much for talking us through not just the IPCC report, but all of the many other topics connected with that. John, it was great to have you on The Explainer this week. It was a pleasure, Aoife. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And a big thank you to Lauren Boland and John Gibbons for joining us this week. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry, that's me, and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And that is such a great way to make sure other people will listen into The Explainer and hopefully love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.